Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the United States. Today is the 21st of July, 2020. And what I'm going to be doing today is my second segment in hopefully a very long arc on a discussion of human senescence. That is the axis of information that leads from birth or from actually conception all the way to death. So we're talking about the aging process in humans. And I'm going to, of course, give you a biochemical framework of how aging functions. And from that, we are going to be able to generate a platform for discussing physiology. And then the pathophysiology of what occurs or what may occur stochastically, that is randomly, throughout the life cycle of an individual. And how that can build defense mechanisms that may increase or extend longevity or may make it come to a, a quick halt. So these discussions, of course, are going to include a lot of biomedical ramifications, including disease states, but also the normal stresses that may occur to the human body and human mind um, during development and past adolescence and on into middle age and old age. And all the factors that may attribute to the ultimate age an individual may uh, land upon. Now, when I say all the factors, I mean the concepts and ideas that underlie those factors. Obviously, we can't deal with every specific one because that would include all of experiences of all people. And of course, we can't do that. That's why I don't like to universalize. But I do like to conceptualize and I do like to use ideation. So that's where we're going to be going with this. So let's pick up where we were last time. This is part two. I want to give you some helpful empirical observations about aging. There is a limited variability of lifespan variation within a species. That suggests signal transduction cascades that maintain cells and tissues. Now, why does that suggest that to me as a biochemist? Well, because signaling and the transduction of that signaling generating a cascade event is something that leads to multiple networking and a multiple level of hierarchies. And that is one way to understand the foundational cohering biochemistry that leads to physiological states. Second helpful empirical observation, failures, or is it compliance to those signaling cascades can result in aging phenotypes. So that, I think, is just a logical progression of what I just said. However, genetically identical individuals maintained in essentially identical environments live for widely varying lengths of time, attesting to a stochastic, again, that means random component, beyond genetic and environmental factors that seem to influence the onset and or rate of aging. Now, when I say onset, I mean onset from any time point, right? Because there's variation in the rate. The, the variability speaks against inevitability, and it does suggest a certain plasticity to the responses of cells, tissues, or organs, and therefore organisms 
to environmental stress, thereby altering, I believe, the timing or of the failure or compliance to homeostatic mechanisms that ultimately result in what we can call a senescent phenotype. Epigenetic modifications to CPG methylation patterns and acetylation of chromatin histones plus the induction of microRNA as induced by innate and acquired immune responses can alter gene expression in specific tissues, thus altering the homeostasis in the short term and perhaps, but not necessarily, in the long term, thus altering aging at the metabolic level. And that includes energy necessary to recombine, replicate, and repair nuclear chromatin, and even, of course, mitochondrial DNA. Now, these empirical observations within a species are complemented by the experimental observations showing that genetic mutations and environmental interventions, particularly in the form of changes in caloric restriction, might impact maximum lifespan of individuals. These are now brought upon us in the literature as studies that are interested in looking at candidate genes and the genes that then are expressed that may respond to or correspond with signaling pathways. And the reason I emphasize signaling is because that deals with an external event becoming an internal process. So anyways, candidate genes with signaling pathways whose mutations or epimutations are known to lead to lifespan extension or termination. So final helpful empirical observation I've listed here. These are just ones I've come up with. Environmental changes such as caloric restriction can also alter lifespan, but in awful, often what I would call paradoxical ways. That is, adolescent caloric restriction can lead to adult obesity, for example, and that results in comorbidity and overall a decrease in lifespan. So it depends on when the caloric restriction occurred, whether or not that has anything to do with increasing lifespan. All right. Now, I told you that ultimately, last time I told you that ultimately I want to leave this towards a discussion of glioblastoma. Uh, that's the most lethal form of central nervous system cancer in humans. And I want to do that because I want to give you an idea of how the discussion of looking at lifespan also includes an understanding of the discussion why cells terminally differentiate. And since cells terminally differentiate, say, for example, into hepatocytes or to, let's say, myocytes or maybe glial cells or neurons is because of the signaling that goes on for that cell to uh, essentially take on the repertoire of what that particular cell must do to be a component of that tissue, right? So liver cells do different things and they compose a different organ than say the renal system or say pulmonary system or the cardio system, right? So 
we can then ask the question, extend it out. This is how I look at it as a biochemist. Um, to ask how, what can, for example, tumor metabolism tell us about cellular longevity and even reproduction, that is cell division. So we know, and I will remind you what it is, but here are some things we know about tumor metabolism. Varberg aerobic glycolysis and lactate production is something we need to cover. We need to talk about a diminished or an exacerbated reactive oxygen species production or elimination of it. We need to talk about either enhanced or diminished oxidative phosphorylation. This is all now bioenergetics. And, and more specifically, discreetly, we can talk about a decrease in, for example, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1 and the peroxisome proliferator activator receptor transcriptional induction of the fatty acid beta oxidation genes as opposed to glucose oxidation. See? Now, this is the reason I'm saying this is this is getting down into tumor metabolism, right? And we're asking what can tumor metabolism tell us about cellular longevity? Because we know that tumors become what? They become essentially immortal and they keep on dividing and dividing and they ultimately destroy the tissue bed that they're in. They metastasize and they kill you, right? So this is where you get an immortalization of a cell type because of mutations where the cell type differs now from the parent cell type lineage. However, we're having rampant growth. So we have to understand why that is restricted. And it is indeed restricted in terminal differentiation, for example, of tissues. And then what is the biochemical like foundation of that? And how does that go awry during oncogenesis? That's why I'm bringing this forward at the biochemical level. We can also talk about some things that are happening just at the uh, subcellular level. And we've mentioned this many times in authentic biochemistry, as well as in my Vera Med lectures. Uh, and these are processes, events like mitophagy, that is the mitochondria consuming itself, and then more generally cellular autophagy, and how those are juxtaposed in a contrarian way to apoptosis. And apoptosis, of course, is one major uh, pathway to program cell death. So we need to talk about all that in a framework of oncogenesis, along with healthy cells, right? Of course. Now, to remind you, I promised you I would, what's the Warburg effect? Okay, so that's altered metabolism is one of the hallmarks of cancer cells. The best known abnormality of cancer cells is the Warburg effect. I'm not going to tell you the history of this. I've done it before. I'm not going to go back to who Warburg was. Anyways, it's called Warburg effect. It's named after a German biochemist, physiologist. So that effect demonstrates an increased glycolysis, that is oxidation of glucose, ultimately either to pyruvate or lactate, even in the presence of molecular oxygen. So another way of looking at it, it's just aerobic, because it's happening in an oxygenic environment, aerobic glycolysis. Because you know, glycolysis itself doesn't require molecular oxygen. So that's why we call it an anaerobic pathway, even though oxygen doesn't poison it. In the presence of oxygen, uh, the cell may choose to go through beta oxidation of fatty acids to generate its ATP rather than the glycolytic pathway. 
coupled, of course, actually with phosphorylation. Uh, and in between there is, of course, the tricarboxylic acid cycle. Now, however, having said that about the Varvik effect, tumor-related metabolic abnormalities are not limited to an altered balance between glucose fermentation and oxidative phosphorylation. There's much more to it than that, of course. As I just said, the TCA cycle, we're going to get way intimate with the TCA cycle and so on. So, there, but also let's think about more broadly. There are oncogenes like P53 and CMYK, and they're found to be master regulators, along with things like AKT and phosphatidyl and inositol 3 kinase and mTOR, right? Those all can work at the transcriptional level uh, to totally regulate uh, different fluences of metabolism that ultimately are indicative of the tumor environment. So we can't just look at uh, glucose metabolism, fatty acid metabolism. We have to understand what genes are being expressed. So we have to look at transcription factors, of course. We have to look at that intracellular signaling, which often involves, of course, my favorite phrase, kinase cascades. All right. So cancer cells exhibit a high rate of glucose uptake and lactic acid production. So you get glucose uptake, you get glycolysis down to pyruvate, and then pyruvate converted to lactic acid via the lactic dehydrogenase pathway, enzyme. Now, cancer cells didn't consume more oxygen than normal tissue, even under normal oxygen pressures. This is what Varberg discovered. The observation that cancer cells preferred aerobic glycolysis over oxidative phosphorylation seems surprising to these researchers, right? And it does, because you get a lot more ATP from oxphos. And then if you have plenty of oxygen, why doesn't the cell carry out oxphos? And by the way, why doesn't it use the alternative fuel, fatty acid? Now, it doesn't necessarily not do that, different stages of tumor growth or different regions of the tumor itself, interior versus exterior, for example, or even during tumor um, metastasis, uh, invasion of other cell beds, for example, where it may flip or alter its metabolic path. Now, we've talked about this often in uh, our Authentic Biochem and Inverative Med. And if you recollect that, we, we spent a lot of time talking about these uh, switch is between glucose oxidation, fatty acid oxidation, we're talking about pastellular carcinoma, and even the pancreatic adenoductal uh, carcinoma that we, we spent several lectures on. We don't need to go back and revisit all of that now, right? I'm not asking you to recollect all that right now either. So what I want to say is intermediate metabolism and cancer have a long history. There's been recent progress in studying an enzyme. Now, this is going to get back into detail. Remember, authentic biochemistry, that's what I do. Uh, in studying an enzyme called isocitrate dehydrogenase, which, of course, is an enzyme in the TCA cycle. We're going to be talking about isocitrate dehydrogenase isoform 1. We're going to talk about the pyruvate kinase muscle form 2, or PKM2. We're also going to talk about a fumarase, which is listed as just FH. That's going to be the acronym I'm going to use. And then one more enzyme I want to discuss uh, with you today is succinate dehydrogenase. I'm going to call that SDH. So we have IDH, which is isotric dehydrogenase, pyruvate kinase M2, which is pyruvate kinase muscle form 2. Originally, that's what it was called. Um, fumarase, which is FH, and then succinate dehydrogenase, SDH. 
Now, mutations in those four enzymes have been demonstrated to alter metabolic enzymes uh, because of, uh, it's going to alter then the metabolic flux through those enzyme pathways. And that can alone can be sufficient, but not necessarily necessary, like that necessarily necessary, to initiate tumors. Right. So now we're going to go and talk about those enzymes, but I'm going to now flesh out how those enzymes are laying within a framework of signaling and then regulation of those enzymes relative to transcriptional patterns. So there are changes in the levels of the hypoxia-inducible factor, we call HIF, that are involved in the oncogenicity of the SDH and FH mutations. I know you like this, right? So there are changes in the level of hypoxia-inducible factor that's going to be a protein that's going to act in to control gene expression, okay? And though that, that HIF uh, regulation is somehow involved in how you get oncogenicity from mutations in the succotehydrogenase and fumarase uh, mutations as associated with oncogenicity. So hypoxic stress, that means limiting oxygen, is a common phenomenon in tumor tissues. And the predominant regulatory factor in this course of oncogenicity is the HIF, the hypoxia-inducible uh, factor. Now, under normal oxygen, HIF-1-alpha, that's the major form, HIF-1-alpha, is degraded through the von Hippel-Lindau or VHL-mediated ubiquitination pathway. Now, in that reaction, the proline residues of HIF-1-alpha, now just remember, this is the inducible uh, hypoxia-inducible factor, 1-alpha, so the proline residues of HIF-1-alpha need to become hydroxylated, okay, hydroxylating a proline in that protein before the HIF-1-alpha is recognized by the von Hippel-Lindau pathway, which is going to degrade that enzyme, that protein, okay? So the hydroxylation of HIF-1-alpha is catalyzed by an enzyme, and that enzyme is called proline hydroxylase. So you get a hydroxylation of HIF-1-alpha, and it's catalyzed by an enzyme called proline hydroxylase, and we're going to call that a PhD. Okay? That's the acronym for proline hydroxylase. So PhDs are a family of alpha-ketoglutarate-dependent enzymes. So they need that TCA intermediate, tricarboxylic acid, Krebs cycle intermediate, alpha-KG, alpha-ketoglutarate. They need that. So during the process of HIF-1-alpha hydroxylation leading to its degradation, the substrate of alpha-KG is oxidized, accompanied with the generation of succinate as a product, okay? So you get mutations of succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase. And that increased the accumulation of succinate and or fumarate. Both of those metabolites can inhibit the enzymatic activity of the proline hydroxylase, the PhD enzyme. That results in a reduced degradation of HIF-1-alpha and the increased expression 
of specific genes that are going to be um, useful for generating tumorigenesis. So the genes are going to be involved in glycolysis, angiogenesis, and overall cell division. Okay, so you've got, let me just give you an idea how this works. TCA pathway shuts down when you have a buildup of NADH. So for, uh, so that would then make all that NADH then necessarily reoxidized by the oxidative phosphorylation electron transport chain, which is mitochondrial. Remember glycolysis is cytosolic. So when you have mutations in SDH and FH, what happens is you get, uh, you don't get metabolism of succinate and fumarate because the succinate dehydrogenase, the substrate is succinate. And the, the, the next reaction, it's not the next reaction to the pathway, but uh, the next reaction that we're, that we're interested in is fumarase and fumarase, FH, its substrate is fumarate, right? So both those enzymes, when they're mutated, cause a, uh, a buildup of those two precursors. So when that happens, right, what succinate and fumarate will do is they will inhibit the PhD enzyme as they accumulate. When they do that, they inhibit HIF1-alpha from, from becoming, uh, those prolines from becoming hydroxylated, then associated with the von Hippel pathway and then degraded. They prevent that, right? And so that also prevents alpha-KG in the presence of molecular oxygen to be converted to succinic acid and carbon dioxide. Okay, so all that happens because of the mutations in SDH and FH. You get that, right? All right, so you're, now you're going to block oxfos and you're going to allow glycolysis to occur in this developing tumor. And at the same time, right, you're going to be able, because HIF1-alpha isn't degraded because of the buildup of succinate and fumarate because of the mutations in succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase, okay, you're going to get the expression at the transcriptional level of the genes in the metabolic pathway glycolysis, in the tissue uh, reformulation pathway, angiogenesis, and in the cell division, uh, cell cycle pathways for cell division, cell proliferation. Hence, adding to tumorigenesis, angiogenesis, uh, laying down new blood vessels so that you can send biofuels to that developing tumor and then glycolysis to generate the ATP necessary for cell division. So it's a nice, sweet deal for the tumor, but what it is is a total level of in-situ regulated sequential uh, canonical, really, mutations within the TCA cycle that disrupt the, uh, the HIF1-alpha, which should be occurring because of oxygen depletion, right? Um, allowing HIF1-alpha to be totally active even in the presence of oxygen. And when it's totally active, because it's not degraded because of the buildup of succinate and fumarate via the ubiquitinylation pathways, because the prolines weren't hydroxylated, because proline hydroxylation is, uh, is, is that enzymatic pathway is inhibited, the PhD enzyme is inhibited by the buildup of succinate and fumarate. See how those mutations, they don't seem like they would be 
associated at all, but now you see they are, right? So again, this isn't a, a paradoxical system and it's not even a complicated system. It's just a complex system because we, we, when we understand it, it makes perfect sense of how this pathway is, becomes corrupted. So then you have to think about the interactions between the PKM enzyme and cellular signaling. So remember that PKM, right? That's pyruvate kinase M2 type so, subtype is at the end of the glycolytic pathway. So when PKM is altered, what one of the ways that it can be altered is by tyrosine kinase activity. And that's what many of those kinase cascade enzymes are triggered to do during oncogenesis. So we call those kinase pathways RTK, right? So basically those are tyrosine kinase pathways. The R is for receptor. So receptor tyrosine kinases will block PKM2 activity. That's going to inhibit pyruvate synthesis. At the same time, the uh, fibrinogen growth factor receptor one is going to phosphorylate that enzyme and shut it off. High concentrations of glucose, which is going to be happening in the tumor, are going to shut it off. And high levels of reactive oxygen, which also occurs subsequent in tumors because of all of this reactive oxygen generated because of the inability for the oxidative phosphorylation pathway to complete its cycle because of all the buildup of NADH because of the corruption of the GCA cycle, right? Remember that? All right. So what that leads to then is um, there was a T50, T, TP53 induced glycolysis and apoptosis regulator called TGAR. And TGAR would normally be triggering a P53 response which would shut down this oncogenic cycle. But that is corrupted because of the corruption of pyruvate kinase, okay? So I want you to get the idea now, you've got these mutations that are happening in the TCA cycle that are regulating the flux through the glycolytic pathway because of the shutoff of oxidative phosphorylation due to the increase in NADH which blocks the electron transport chain, at the same time blocking fatty acid oxidation, which requires NAD to build up, and you're not going to get that if you don't have oxidative phosphorylation. So, and plus molecular oxygen can't be the ultimate electron. So, so you see how these things function in tandem? Multiple levels of integration of, of biochemical pathways leading to a completely altered metabolic system because just a few mutations in a few genes leading to a corruption of normal physiology and then the triggering of a glycolytic response in the tumor cell and lack of fatty acid oxidation and yet a tremendous buildup of intermediates which will otherwise corrupt ultimately the immune system and that's something we talked about in the past and don't worry I'll bring it up again as we get more fully into this whole system. Now, the reason we're talking about all of this, remember, is because we want to know more about what tumors do to enhance their immortality. So tumor cells are enhanced in immortality and cell division and relate that back to the senescent aging process, right? 
So we want to know how this can tell us something about the aging process. And that's what I'm doing with you right now. So I'm going to stop here because we're at the end of our time. And what we're going to do when we get back to this, so we're going to continue on our discussion of intermediary metabolism, which is what we're doing, the TCA cycle glycolysis, and how it got already, we can tell it became corrupted. We've introduced a couple of transcription factors. We've talked now just mostly about hypoxia-inducible factor and how its ability to not be degraded in the presence of oxygen, which should have been done by a proline hydroxylase, was corrupted because of mutations in TCA cycle enzymes, those being the succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase, have led now to pressure put on the pyruvate kinase, the last enzyme in the pathway. Ultimately, all this is going to lead to an increase in lactic acid. This is another biomarker, if you will, for tumor cells. So I'm going to leave you with that, and I'll get back to part three of this series very soon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying from Authentic Biochemistry, bye for now.